nor could I drink without getting drunk. And I almost destroyed me under that condition. I came to AA and I got sober and I worked this program. Now, I no longer live in that hopeless state of mind and body. I cannot safely drink alcohol, but by golly, I can stay sober. And I don't live in that hopeless state of mind and body. I'll always be alcoholic, but I have recovered from alcoholism. And the main, the main purpose of this book, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered, is the main purpose of this book. And it's kind of like making cake. Uh, let's say we go to an AA potluck beating, and somebody's made a strawberry cake. And that's my favorite, by the way. If you ever make me one, that's what I'd like to have. <laughs> and I bite into that cake, and it's just perfect. The texture's right. The moisture's right. The taste is right. And I say, who made this cake? And you being a good cook, you'd say, well, I, I made it. And I'd say, well, will you tell me how to do it, how you did it? And you say, sure, I'll be glad to. And you sit down, and you write out for me a precise set of directions on how to make that cake. You tell me the ingredients to put in it the quantity of the ingredients to put in it, the sequence in which to mix them together, the temperature at which to bake it, and how long to bake it. And if I take your directions in my kitchen and I follow them exactly as you've laid them out, when it comes out of the oven and cools off and I take a bite of it, I think I can expect it to taste exactly like your cake tasted. But if I take your directions in my kitchen... And my keen intellectual alcoholic mind begins to work. I might say, well, now, I don't think it needs three eggs. It ought to have five. <laughs> instead of two cups of sugar, we ought to put three in it. Yeah, instead of, instead of baking it at 375, I'm going to bake it at 450. Hmm. Instead of baking it for 20 minutes, I'm going to bake it for 30. When that thing comes out of the oven and cools off, you betcha I'm going to be biting into a piece of cake. But I wonder how closely it would resemble your cake, which was my reason for making it in the first place. A precise, specific, clear-cut set of directions on how to recover from a hopeless state of mind and body known as alcoholism. I've never seen anybody fail that followed this precise method outlined in this book. My book said many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I stood in the back of the rooms and I looked down at my feet. I had become everything I detested in a human being. I'd compromised every principle known to man and God, and I didn't feel good. I didn't have any understanding that I might be a sick person. I thought I was a no-good, rotten SOB. That's the way that I felt. We were in a hotel room, and I guess it was mine in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in 1975, Charlie and Joe and I, Tony and Phyllis and some others. Charlie said that night that alcoholism is not a matter of willpower, not a matter of sin, not a matter of low character. And I said to myself, well, it's none of those things. What in the hell is it? See, I've been running around AA for a couple of years there, treating it as if it was a moral issue. And he said it's an illness, an actual illness. And then we were introduced to the doctor's opinion, which we're going to do now. And this doctor's opinion set me free. The idea that I had an illness rather than a moral issue intrigued me, you see, set me free. I was in a place one time a few years ago talking, and this old-timer come up to me, 
he jumped me real. He's one of those guys in the, in the fellowship who's a guardian of the fellowship through the traditions, and we need him, and I loved him. And he said to me, he said, what are you reading? I said, well, I'm reading the doctor's opinion. And he said, well, what book did you get it out of? I said, well, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a little one, and I showed it to him. And he turned around and left. The next day he come up to me, and before he got to me, he started crying. He walked over and said, Joe, I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for 39 years. And I didn't know that that chapter was in the book. And he said to me, when I get back home, I'm going to find me a group of people who want to study this program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm going to do that. You see, he said, I, I, 39 years, 39 years, and he didn't know. The one chapter, they got moved back into the Roman numeral sections. And we all know we don't read Roman numeral sections, do we? <laughs> we missed the most important chapter here. What is our problem? And I needed to know that. Because it set me free from being a no good, rotten SOB, full of sin, lack of willpower, Everything set me free from that. That's the, what the doctor's opinion will do. You know, alcoholism isn't anything new. Alcoholism has been with the human race as far back as any recorded history that we can possibly find. I think one of our oldest parts of recorded history is to be found in the Bible. And in the Bible, there's a chapter in there called Proverbs. And Proverbs is written by a fellow named Solomon. And you all know Solomon was a very, very learned individual. Everybody came to him to get their problem solved. Probably the first social worker the world has yeah, ever known. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently somebody asked old Solomon one time about, about we alcoholics. And he describes this in Proverbs. He says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine. Everybody was a wino in those days. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the hard stuff yet. And then he went ahead to describe us some more. He said, you'll be as one who lieth down in the midst of the sea. You remember how you used to go to bed at night and that old bed start moving around down there? <laughs> or sleepeth at the top of a tall mast. You sway back and forth. And he said, you shall say they have beaten me and I felt it not. Remember how you used to get up in the morning, you got bruises all over you, and you don't remember how they got there? And he surely knew some of us men. He said, and thine eyes shall behold strange women. And thy heart shall utter perverse things. Like, trust me, honey. <laughs> Please, honey. But then he said the most descriptive of all. He said, they will arise in the morning and seek it yet again. Almost a perfect description of alcoholism as we know it today. But Solomon didn't have any answer for it. And throughout our entire history of humankind, people have been trying to find the answer to alcoholism. You know, there was a doctor in England well over 500 years ago named Dr. Trotter. And he, he was one of the first to come up with the idea that, that alcoholism is a disease. He really didn't understand why, nor did he have any solution for it other than just don't drink, period. There was a doctor 
was a signer of the Declaration of Independence here in our country named Benjamin Rush. And he wrote a paper on alcoholism. And he described we alcoholics, and he said it was a full-blown disease. But he didn't have any solution for it either. And it was only in 1930 when Dr. Silkworth went to work at the town's hospital that we began to see some information being developed about what alcoholism really is. Now, Silky had always loved to work with alcoholics. Even in medical school, he was interested in alcoholics. But when he got out of medical school, he couldn't make a living working with alcoholics. You know, doctors didn't want to work with us in those days, and they still don't like to work with us today. And the doctor says that one reason they don't want to work with us is is we'll never tell them the truth. And we certainly don't. And they say that they never do what we tell them to do, and we don't. But they say the main reason we don't want to work with them is they don't pay their bills. <laughs> so Silky went off into another field, really, and worked in it for years. And then finally, finally, due to, due to the Depression, due to the great stock market crash, Everybody was trying to find somewhere to work, and Dr. Silkworth agreed to go to work for a guy named Charlie Towns at the Towns Hospital in New York City, and I think they were paying him something like $30 a week room and board. And from 1930 to 1934, he worked with many, 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 many different alcoholics. And through practical experience, he began to develop these ideas that he had about this actual physical craving that develops in the body of the alcoholic, and it doesn't in the normal drinker. He began to develop his ideas about the obsession of the mind. And, and because of that information, we have seen literally millions of people since 1935 who have recovered from alcoholism. And prior to that time, very few alcoholics ever recovered. Once in a while, one would in a church setting that nearly all of them actually died from alcoholism. And I don't think we people in AA today really realize what a great debt that we owe to this doctor because he was willing to work with people like us. Most doctors would not work with people like us. He was willing to, to gain the experience necessary to be able to develop these ideas and then after AA started, he worked with thousands and thousands of alcoholics up until the moment of his death. And I don't think we really realize the debt of gratitude we owe this little doctor. Let's look at him for just a few minutes. Let's go to Roman numeral 23, and let's talk about the doctor for just a little bit, and then we'll be through. Is it this one right here? You know, in the old days, uh, today, if you engage in scientific research, you use a lot of rats for your... Experiments. Dr. Silkworth used us, human beings, for his experiment. Silky worked with drunks. Yeah. He said the doctor's opinion, Roman numeral page 23, or I guess it's 25 in the fourth edition. We try to keep yeah. up with that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have alcoholics anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in the book. Convincing testimony must surely come from the medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. 
a well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. Remember, this used to be on page one. Now, to whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, who had a, been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I'd come to regard it as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics. Of course, he's referring to Bill Wilson now. Impressing upon them that they must do likewise was still others. This became the, basic, uh, the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were the type with whom the other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may absolutely you may rely absolutely upon anything they may say about themselves. I'm not quite sure about that. <laughs> I agree with everything you said except the last yeah. statement. Yours very truly, William D. Silkworth. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. <clears throat> Excuse me. In this statement, he confirms what we have suffered in alcoholic torture must believe. Now, there's no must in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm aware of. But there's a lot of must in this book, and there's one of them. We must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Now, this is the first time we can find anywhere in written history a reference to the fact that the body is affected as well. Everything up until this point dealt with the mind only. Weak will, moral character, sin. And now he's saying that the body is quite as abnormal as the mind. I think he's saying two things. The body is abnormal when it comes to alcohol, and the mind is abnormal when it comes to alcohol. And we're going to talk about those two abnormalities before we're through. The abnormal reaction to alcohol, both physically and mentally. The first thing we'll talk about is the body. We'll separate it from the mental, and then we'll talk about the mental a little bit later. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental effectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As lame in our opinions to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that the explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Okay, now if the purpose of a textbook is to transfer information from the mind of one human being or a group of human beings through the written word to the mind of another human being, thereby increasing the knowledge of the user of the book. And I think that's what they're for. And it stands to reason the transference of that information 
is going to be based upon the understanding of the words that are used in the book. If the writer uses a certain word and has a certain understanding of it, the reader of the book reads that word but has a different understanding of it, then the information that comes through is going to be garbled and incomplete information. And it seems as though there's a certain few key words in the big book that many of us have had difficulty in the past understanding them the way the writer understood them. And I think the first one is this word allergy. You know, most of us, before we come to AA, we've got a preconceived idea about allergies. I know I did. And I knew if you were allergic to something and you got around it or you ate it or you drank it or whatever, there would be some physical manifestation or indicator of that allergy. For instance, if you're allergic to strawberries and you eat them, you break out in a rash. The rash being the physical manifestation of that allergy. If you're allergic to milk and you drink it, you have a bad case of dysentery. The dysentery being the physical manifestation of that allergy. If you're allergic to certain plants, such as ragweeds, you get around them, your eyes itch, your nose itch, they water, and you begin to sneeze. The itchy, watery eyes, the sneezing, those are the physical manifestations of that allergy. So I knew if you were allergic to something, there would be some manifestation that you could see. So I come to AA, and they say, Charlie, you're allergic to alcohol. You'll never be able to safely drink it again. And I said, how in the hell can I be allergic to alcohol? I'm drinking a quart a day. How can you possibly drink that much of something you're allergic to? And I said, besides that, when I drink alcohol, I don't break out in a rash. I don't have a bad case of dysentery. Once in a while I would, depending on what I've been drinking, but usually I didn't. Nor did it make my eyes, nose itch, water, and cause me to sneeze. And I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. You need to explain that to me. And they said, well, you don't need to understand it. All you need to know is you just can't drink it and keep coming to meetings and you'll be okay. Well, today I think I know why they told me that. I don't think they understood it a bit better than I did. And I would go from person to person to person to person trying to get somebody to explain this allergy to me, and nobody would. Well, they said, I hey, forget the damn allergy. Another guy said, I'll agree with you. We can't be allergic to it. Another one said, just keep coming to meetings and you'll be all right. Now, if you've got a keen intellectual alcoholic mind like I have, and you get a question like that dangling out here in front of you, if you don't get the answer to it, it's going to drive you out of your mind sooner or later. And one day, in sheer, complete desperation, I went to a source of information that has never failed me since that time. I went to a dictionary, and I looked up the word allergy, and I found several definitions, the same as you do with any word, depending on how you use it. But I think I found the one that fits me exactly. It said an allergy is an abnormal reaction to any food, beverage, or substance of any kind. An abnormal reaction. So I immediately began to look back through my drinking history to see where I was abnormal when it comes to alcohol. And I suddenly realized I don't know what's normal and what's abnormal. 
The only thing I know about drinking alcohol is the way I drank it and the way those people drank it who drank with me. And if they didn't drink like I did, we didn't drink together. So in order for me to find out what's normal so I can see if I'm abnormal, I have to go to the normal, social, temperate, moderate drinker. Those that drink alcohol and those that never get in trouble with alcohol. And I ask them to describe to me, how do you feel whenever you have a couple of drinks of alcohol? And they say something like this. Well, we can come home from work, tired, tense, and wrought up from the day's work. We can have a drink or two before dinner, and we get kind of a relaxing feeling. And we go ahead and have dinner, and then we probably won't drink anymore that night. Well, I don't feel that way when I drink alcohol. (laughs) When I take a drink of alcohol, as it passes my lips, my lips begin to tingle. It hits my teeth, and they kind of chatter up and down. Strikes my tongue, and I feel it begin to grow and expand and swell. Hits my cheeks, and they flutter in and out. And at the same time, it's passing through my sinus cavities into my forehead, and I begin to get a feeling in my forehead, which is absolutely, indescribably wonderful. Now, I haven't even swallowed the damn stuff yet. I just got it in my mouth. When I swallow it, you know what happens. As it goes down through my esophagus, my chest begins to grow and expand and get bigger and bigger. Hits my stomach and just literally explodes like a bomb. I feel it immediately racing through my arms and they get longer and longer. Hits my fingers and they begin to tingle and vibrate. Same time it's racing through my arms, it's racing through my legs. They're getting longer and longer and I'm getting taller and taller. And it hits my feet and toes and I to get a hot, intense, burning, exciting, get up and go somewhere and do something feeling. I don't understand a relaxing feeling when you have a couple of weeks out. <laughs> These people told me some information that absolutely blew my mind. They said, Charlie, Charlie, whenever we have a couple of drinks, we begin to get a slightly tipsy, out of control, beginnings of a nauseous feeling. And they say, we don't like that feeling. Therefore, one or two drinks is all we want to drink. And how many times have you tried to get them to drink more than a couple? They say, oh, no, no, I feel this already. (laughs) Or no, 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 it's making me dizzy. No, 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 it's it's beginning to make me sick. We don't want any (laughs) more. Now, here's where I react to it abnormally mentally. When I put it in my system, it goes to my stomach and immediately spreads throughout my body and races to my brain. And when it goes into my brain, instead of getting a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling, I begin to experience a very exciting, in-control feeling. They have two drinks, and they want to go to bed. I have two drinks, and I want to go to town. Today I realize a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling is normal. For the normal drinker, alcohol is a sedative. It's a downer. It's supposed to give you a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling. But for we alcoholics, it's not a downer. It's an upper for us. It's a stimulant. And it excites us. 
And we want to get up and go and do things. So I react to it abnormally mentally. But then they said it gave them a nauseous feeling. And they said, we don't like that feeling of nausea, so we don't want any more. I put it in my body and it goes into my stomach. I don't experience the feeling of nausea. What I experience is an actual physical craving that demands more of the same. Their body says, puke it up. Mine says, put some more in here. And that craving is so strong that I can't control the amount that I drink after I once start drinking. Today I realize the normal reaction to alcohol, it's a destroyer of human tissue. And you put something in a body that will destroy human tissue, the mind and body working together experiences nausea and says, let's puke it up. But for we alcoholics, it doesn't do that. When we put it in our body, instead of saying puke it up, it simply says, put some more in it. And we react abnormally, both mentally and physically, when it comes to alcohol. The only difference between normal and abnormal is what are the majority of the people do. Nine out of ten react that way. One out of ten reacts the way I do. Therefore, we are considered to be allergic to alcohol. Both mentally and physically, we are abnormal. I didn't know that until I talked to those social drinkers. And they gave me that information, and it like to blew my mind. You know, today I just love to watch them. I love to watch social drinkers. And the best place in the world to watch them is in an airplane. You got them close, they can't get away from you. And, and, and they'll order a drink from, from, from the flight attendant, and they bring it in a little bitty bottle. Yeah, five bucks today. Not, not a drink in that bottle, five bucks for that bottle. And, and they'll take that bottle, and they'll get a mixer with it, and they'll pour it in that glass full of mixer. And then they go through what I call a stirring ceremony. <laughs> they sit there and they stir and they stir and they stir and they stir. And you know what they do when they get through stirring? They lay their little stick down and pick up their magazine and start reading the magazine. <laughs> I'm sitting over here saying, why don't you drink the damn stuff? That's what you do. <laughs> Now, if there's any such thing as alcohol abuse, I think that's it, right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you think this big book is enlightening and surprised what you might find it in it, try one of those dictionaries. It's amazing what's in there. And so let's read this again now that we have that description. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As layman, our opinions to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. He explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. He explains to me, for instance, why I would go down by the bar with every intention of having maybe two drinks and go home. Well, the next thing I know, it's midnight or one or two o'clock in the morning or the next day or next week and years ago, the next month and whatever. But that's why what happens when I drink. It's virtually impossible to describe or to guarantee what I'm going to do once I take a drink because of the allergy of the body. It sets up a craving beyond my mental control, and it's more important than anything else in my life. It has been proven to be that way, and that interests me. I needed to know that information. It explains many things which, which I couldn't otherwise account. Now, he explains that here on that page. A good textbook. 
a good textbook never tells you anything but what it doesn't back it up with additional information to prove the point. Let's now go over to Roman numeral 26. Or 28. Or 28 in the fourth edition. And we're going to talk about this allergy again just a little bit. So we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic, I was diagnosed as a chronic alcoholic. I didn't like that diagnosis. I understand it today, but I still don't like it much. <laughs> chronic simply means doing the same things over and over and over. So I was a chronic alcoholic. Is a manifestation of an allergy. And that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. The average temperate drinker is not allergic to alcohol. Only alcoholics are. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit, and found they cannot break it. Once having lost their self-confidence to reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Okay. The manifestation of the allergy to strawberries is a rash. You can see it. The manifestation of the allergy to milk is dysentery. You can see it. The manifestation of the allergy to ragweeds is itchy, watery eyes, sneezy. You can see it. The manifestation of the allergy to alcohol is referred to here as the phenomenon of craving. He calls it a phenomenon because he didn't understand why. He says the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So the manifestation of our allergy is the actual physical craving that develops in the body after we've had a drink or two of alcohol. Now, the only way an alcoholic can crave alcohol is to put it in the body first. Then the phenomenon of craving develops, and then we can't stop drinking. And in the context of the big book, when you see the word craving, in the first 164 pages anyhow, it's always referring to the body, never to the mind. I hear a lot of people say, I came to AA and I craved a drink for two years. Now, in the context of the big book, that's the wrong use of that word. They needed a drink, they wanted a drink, they desired a drink. But the only way an alcoholic can crave alcohol in the context of the big book is to first put it in the system. Then the phenomenon of craving develops. And then we can't stop. You cannot see our allergy. You can only feel it. And only alcoholics feel it. Normal, social, temperate, moderate drinkers never experience the phenomenon of craving. Only we alcoholics experience it. That's why they will never be able to understand us, because they don't know anything about this phenomenon of craving. They never experience it. Therefore, they'll never understand it. So that's the real main allergy to alcohol, is we react to it entirely different physically than normal people do. Now, again, he's not going to tell you anything, but what he backs it up. On Roman numeral 28, or 30 in the fourth edition, he's going to talk about five different kinds of alcoholics. And he's going to drive this point home again. 
about the phenomenon of craving one more time. He said the classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and much details outside the scope of this book. He said there are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. By the way, there's five different types of alcoholics he's going to describe here. There's probably a lot more different types of alcoholics, but lack of space, he just talks about five. Today, I realize there's many different types of alcoholics. There are people in this room here tonight, but he's going to talk about five. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We're all familiar with this type. They're always going on a wagon for keeps. They're over-remorseful, make many resolutions, but never a decision. We call that type one. There is a type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. Type two. There is a type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. Type three. There is a man depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends, about whom a whole chapter could be written. Type four. I always thought I was the next one at type five. Then there are types entirely normal in every respect. Doesn't that describe Charlie? Except in effect alcohol has upon them. They're often able, intelligent, friendly people. I used to read that and I'd think, well, how did he know so much about me anyhow? <laughs> now he makes his point. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Now, I think what he said is this. If all we alcoholics in this room tonight should take a drink, God forbid that happened, but if we did, we would not all react exactly the same. In just a little bit, one of us would be crying in our bureau, oh, the world not treating us. In just a little bit, one of us would be right up on top of a table, hooping and hollering and dancing and cutting up and having a good time. In just a little bit, look back in the far corner, there'll be two of them back there getting in a fight, just sure as anything. Look over in this corner, there'll be a couple over here, one putting the make on the other. We tend to do that, too, when we drink. We would do many, many different things. But if we're real alcoholic, there's one thing every one of us would do. We would start looking for a second drink. The phenomenon of craving has developed, and now we've got to have a third drink, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and on and on, till we're drunk and sick and in all kinds of trouble. And it really doesn't make any difference whether we were born with it or whether we drank ourselves into it. I think I was born with it. I drank alcohol for 26 years. I don't ever remember taking one drink of anything that had alcohol in it. Alcohol, it one always led to two to three to six to eight to ten. Joe drank with relative safety for several years. Finally, though, the same thing happened to him. That happened to me from the very beginning. Every time he tried to drink, he ended up drunk and sick and in all kinds of trouble. So it doesn't make any difference whether we're born with it or drank ourselves into it. Nor does it make any difference how long it takes us to get drunk. You know, this phenomenon of craving developed to the point in me that if I would take a drink, say, at 8 o'clock in the evening, by midnight I found a policeman and I'm in jail somewhere. Some of you might have one or two tonight, three or four tomorrow night, five or six the next night, 
And it may take you a week to find your policeman and get in jail. But what difference does it make? The first drink is what triggers it off. And we end up drunk. And and I know that's true. Because if you and I could drink without getting drunk, we wouldn't be here tonight, would we? We'd be out there somewhere drinking without getting drunk. And this is what we've really got in common in AA. This is the real identification thing in AA. This is why we need to be talking about nothing but alcoholism in AA. Because this is the thing that every one of us has experienced. And every one of us understands it. And every one of us has gone through it. And this came to us from Dr. Silkworth. Now, if I don't want my allergy to hurt me, then the only thing I've got to do is just don't drink. Right? If I don't take a drink, my allergy can't hurt me. And we're going to look at a picture here for just a moment showing this allergy. And let us say that Let us be the first to say this little picture we're going to look at is not AA information. You know, AA doesn't get involved into uh, why we're allergic. If we did, it would create controversy within our fellowship. But there's information that's come out in the last few years that has proven the doctor's opinion. Uh, Back in the 1930s, they didn't know much about metabolism. Today they do. Today they know if you take a piece of beefsteak and put it in your body, the mind and body recognizes what it is. Certain organs of the body produce some enzymes. The enzymes attack the beefsteak and start breaking it down. And the body has the ability to separate it into usable and non-usable items. The vitamins, the amino acids, the carbohydrate things necessary for the body, it retains. The rest of it it gets rid of through the urinary and intestinal tract. It'll do the same thing with a liquid that it does with a solid. And it'll do the same thing with anything you put in it, provided it's not a deadly poison that kills you before it can be metabolized. That center picture shows the normal, social, temperate, moderate drinker. Uh, this is a thing we picked up several years ago from a study a doctor had been doing for a long time. The normal social drinker puts alcohol in the system. The enzyme production starts. The enzymes attack the alcohol. And they break it down first to a material called acetaldehyde. Then after a period of time, it's broken down to diacetic acid. Then after a period of time, it's broken down to acetone. And in the final stages, it becomes a simple carbohydrate made up of water, sugar, and carbon dioxide. The body will use the water, any excess, it will dissipate through the urinary intestinal tract. The sugar is energy, calories, empty calories, by the way. None of the amino acids, none of the vitamins, just energy. And the body will burn it as such and store the excess as fat to be used at a later date. The carbon dioxide will be dissipated through the lungs. In the normal social drinker, the metabolic rate is approximately one ounce per hour. It'll vary with different people, but approximately one ounce per hour. And if they don't drink more than an ounce per hour, they can't get drunk. 
And they very seldom drink more than one ounce per hour. You see, they get that slightly tipsy, out of control, beginnings of a nauseous feeling. It's very difficult to get one of them to drink more than an ounce per hour. If you're with one of them and they're drinking more than an ounce per hour, you better stand back because they're going to puke on you after a while. <laughs> Let's look at the left-hand side of that picture. Now, that's we alcoholics. And we put it in our system. And it seems as though the enzymes in our system necessary to metabolize alcohol are not there in the same quantities or qualities as they are in the body of the non-alcoholic. It goes into our system, the enzymes attack it and break it down to acetaldehyde, then to diacetic acid, then to acetone. Now, it seems as though the enzymes necessary to break it down from acetone to the simple carbohydrate are simply not the same qualities or quantities as they are in the body of the non-alcoholic. And it stays in our system a much longer time as acetone. Now, it's been proven today that acetone ingested into the human system, that remains there for an appreciable period of time, will produce an actual physical craving for more of the same. It goes through that stage so rapidly in the non-alcoholic, the craving never occurs. Stays in our body long enough to produce the actual physical craving, and that demands a second drink. Now, we take a second drink. We've got the acetone, most of it, from the first drink still there. Now we add the acetone from the second drink, and the acetone level goes up. And when the acetone level goes up, the craving becomes harder. And that demands a third drink. We got most of the first, nearly all the second. Now we add that in from the third, and the acetone level goes up, and the craving becomes harder. At midnight, after 20 drinks, <laughs> we're laying out in the parking lot. They run over us and broke her leg. And they come running up to us and say, can we help you? And we say, my God, yes, give me another drink. <laughs> we're craving it harder at midnight after 20 drinks than we were at four in the evening after one or two drinks. That explains to me why I never got enough. I never did drink all the alcohol I wanted to drink. So I drank more than I needed a thousand and one times, but I never got all that I wanted. Because the more I drank... The more I crave, and the more I crave, the more I have to drink. Now, that wouldn't be so bad if it never got any worse. But you and I know not only are we in the grips of an illness, it is a progressive illness that always gets worse, never better. Probably for two reasons. Number one, alcohol is a destroyer of human tissue. The longer you drink, the more you drink, the more tissue you destroy. And it seems as though the first organs of the body that alcohol begins to destroy are the liver and the pancreas. Today they know that the organs of the body that produce the enzymes necessary to metabolize alcohol are the liver and the pancreas. And as we begin to destroy them, the enzyme production becomes less and less. 
The craving becomes harder and harder. The drinking becomes harder and harder. And the resultant trouble becomes harder and harder. I think another reason for it is the aging process. You know, we know as we get older, the body begins to shut down on the production of everything. Uh, believe me, that's true. I'm experiencing a lot of that now in these last few years. And if I'd take a drink tonight, I wouldn't start where I left off X number of years ago. If I'd take a drink tonight, the craving would be harder. The drinking would be harder. The trouble would be harder because of the aging process. So not only do I have an illness called alcoholism, I've got a progressive illness that always gets worse whether I drink or whether I don't drink. And how do I know that? I talk to every guy that's been in AA for a number of years and gets drunk. And I make it a point to go see him and say, was it any better this time? Always. Hell no, it's ten times as bad as it was five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. And this explains to me why I can no longer safely drink alcohol. Until I saw this kind of information, I, I just knew there had to be some way I could drink without getting drunk. And I down there kill me trying to drink without getting drunk. And now that I can see this, I can accept the fact I can no longer safely drink alcohol. Now, if that was my only problem, well, we'd pass the hat and everybody throw a dollar in it and we'd get up and go home, wouldn't we? But I got another problem, too. I got another problem, too. I, I got a friend who is allergic to, of all things, fish. And every time he eats fish, his throat swells up. He almost chokes to death. He ends up in a hospital. Now, the fact that he's allergic to fish, though, is beside the point. If he didn't eat fish. But he's got something in his mind that doesn't work right when it comes to fish. <laughs> a light bulb that doesn't come on or a switch that doesn't work or something. Because from time to time, his mind tells him it's okay to eat fish. And he'll eat the fish, and he ends up in the hospital every time. And I'll bet it nearly always starts like this. Well, I haven't had any fish in 90 days. Surely I could have one piece of fish. All right, so's rock cod have been eaten. If I'd eat nothing but bass, everything would be okay. We might even say it's them damn people I've been eating fish with if I'd just change my crowd. Whatever the reason, his mind gives him permission to eat fish. I'm the same way when it comes to alcohol. Left on my own resources. Something in my head doesn't work right. A light bulb doesn't come on, a switch doesn't close or something, because from time to time my mind tells me it's okay to take a drink of alcohol. And then the allergy takes over, and then I die. So we're going to find as we go through the book that this physical allergy thing is very important for us to know, but that's not our real problem. Our real problem centers in the mind telling us it's okay to drink rather than in the body that ensures that it's not okay. Let's look at the mind for just a little bit, and then we'll be through. So the doctor says the only relief he has to suggest is just don't drink. So now we're going to talk about the most dangerous part of the illness. And the most dangerous part of the illness is not when we're drinking. It's when we're sober. You know why? Because we're thinking about drinking. 
That's the most dangerous part of the illness. So let's move backward now to the Roman numeral page 26 in the third edition and Roman numeral page 28 in the fourth edition. And we'll talk a bit about the, uh, about the, the mind, the obsession of the mind. It says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Now, many alcoholics are highly offended when you tell them that. They say, oh, no, 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 that's not the reason I drink alcohol. They say, the reason I drink alcohol is I love the taste of alcohol. I wouldn't argue with them whether they do or not, you know. I love the taste of cold beer. Always have, all my life, as far back as I can remember. I also love the taste of cold mountain spring water. I never did sit down and drink a case of cold mountain spring water. <laughs> Alcohol did something for me that cold mountain spring water doesn't do. Always on the outside of the crowd looking in. Always wanted to be a part of and knew I could not be. You ladies, I was absolutely scared to death of you. I was just tongue-tied when I got within 20 feet of one of you. And one night at a high school dance, somebody gave me a drink of moonshine whiskey. And all those fears disappeared. And I was allowed to ask a girl to dance with her. Danced with her and didn't make a fool of myself. I was allowed to ask to take her home from the dance. I was allowed to get in the back seat of a 36 Chevrolet with her and do some things I've been wanting to do for a long, long time. I love the effect produced by alcohol. If it made me slightly tipsy, out of control, and nauseous, I wouldn't like that. But you see, it excites me, and it turns me on, and it lets me do those things I never could do before. It lets me just as good be just as good as anybody else. It lets me be whatever I wanted to be when I was drinking. I love the effect of it. You know, we can all identify with that effect, but there are many, many other effects by which we drink, too. Sometimes we overdo some of those things we always wanted to do and get in a little bit of trouble. And we wake up the next morning, we have a little guilt, shame, and remorse. And we call for another drink to get rid of the guilt, shame, and remorse. And we know that alcoholism is a progressive illness. It gets worse over a period of time. And we drink for many, many other effects. In the end of my drinking, I drank for the sickest effect of all. was total oblivion. I just wanted out of it. There's only one thing wrong with a total oblivion. You wake up. Right? And you have to start drinking all over again. There are many, many effects by which we drink. He said the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, that it cannot after time differentiate the true from the false. I got who I didn't know the true from the false about my drinking. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. My alcoholic life became normal to me. The abnormal became normal. And the bars that I went to and drank in, if they didn't drink in that bar somewhat like I did, I didn't go in those bars. And the people that I ran around with, if they didn't drink like I did, I didn't run around with them. The abnormal had become normal to me. I didn't know the truth from the false. I remember one morning, my wife, Phyllis, stand up there, honey, just a minute. Phyllis. That's Phyllis. She's my wife. She, she has a chronological birthday Sunday, by the way. And soon, soon she'll have uh, 30 years of sobriety, too, thank God. So, 
How many? How many times you been married to Phillips? Well, she only claimed once, but I divorced her twice, and it wasn't even my turn. So. <laughs> I remember one morning we woke up and come to what drunks do. And I said, Phyllis, do you realize most people don't drink like we do? You know what she said to me? She said, bullshit. <laughs> I don't talk that way. That's what she said. She said, bullshit. Everybody we know drinks like we do. Well, that was the truth, you know. That was, and I didn't know that. <laughs> to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. It became normal to me. And this is what we are when we're not drinking. They are restless, irritable, discontented. And I put a few other little words in there, too, full of guilt, shame, and remorse for some of the things I did while drinking. Remember when you were brand new, they said to you, hey, if you don't drink, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel resentment better. You're going to feel anger better. You're going to feel a lot of things better because we don't have the alcohol to kill the pain, you see. That's why it's important to get on through these steps as quickly as possible. Because I don't suffer well. I mean, I still don't suffer well. And I certainly did in those days. I've got to find some relief for some of that guilt, shame, remorse, that restless, dis- irritable discontentedness. If I don't, I'm going to have to go back to drink. Because I know there's a solution for that. It's recorded right up here on the hard drive. It's still there. It doesn't go away. He said, unless they can again experience a sense of ease of comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks... Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. My neighbor, he drank with impunity. He drank like I did, but he never did get into trouble I got into. So he was drinking with impunity. He said, after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, then we take the drink. And then the phenomenal craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. Now, this is repeated over and over and over and over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope for his recovery. Entire change of ideas, emotions, and attitudes while not drinking. Unless that can happen, there's very little hope for a recovery. Bill called it a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience, and talks about a personality change. But here, Dr. Silkwood called it a psychic change. They're talking about all talking about the same things. Unless that can happen, there's very little hope for my recovery. And another thing that I've learned, too, you can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. can't think your way out of it. The more we try to think our way out of it, the deeper into it we get, you see. Go ahead, Charlie. Okay, we made up this little drawing to more or less indicate not only the physical side, but also the mental side of alcoholism. And over here on this physical side, we could all see why we can't safely drink. Now, for years and years, alcohol was my friend. For years and years, it allowed me to function in society. It allowed me to do the things I wanted to do. And allowed me just to be as good as anybody else, period. But after several years of drinking, and we know it's a progressive illness, the drinking began to get worse and worse. The drunks became longer and longer. The resultant troubles became more and more. And I did what most alcoholics do. Whenever the alcohol began to be a problem for me, I never really considered quitting drinking. 
What I said was, Charlie, you're going to have to learn how to control your drinking. You're going to have to cut down on the amount you drink. With the end result that every time I tried to control my drinking, whether it was changing my brand, or whether it was going from beer to wine, wine to whiskey, or whiskey to vodka, or whether it was buying a half a pint or a quart, every time I tried to control my drinking while drinking, I ended up drunk every time. Any of you guys ever try to control your drinking while drinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see now why it was impossible for me to do so. Now that I know about the allergy, and now that I know about the progression, I can see why not only could I not control my drinking while drinking, but the drinking just got worse and worse and worse and worse. I'm a slow learner. After three, four, five years of it getting worse and worse and worse and worse, not being able to control my drinking while drinking, then I pulled out the most useful tool that an alcoholic has, which is willpower. And I said, well, since I can't seem to be able to control my drinking while drinking, then what I better do is just quit drinking. Period. Just quit drinking. Now, I would come off of those drunks And I would be restless and irritable and discontented. I'd be filled with shame and guilt and remorse and resentment, and I didn't feel good. And over here is my emotional barometer. And as the days went by without any relief, as the days went by doing nothing about the way I felt down here, getting more and more irritable, more and more mad at my wife, more and more trouble with my kids, more and more trouble at work, I'd get to thinking about, well, now, Charlie, you know, maybe you're not a real alcoholic. <laughs> you know, after all, you've been sober now for several days. <laughs> you could probably have one or two drinks and get by with it. I always can remember if for the problem, how a drink always solved that problem for me. And I'd get to thinking about taking a drink, and I'd take a drink, and I'd trigger the allergy, and I'd end up drunk, and I'd come off remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And I said, okay, now, you're really going to have to use your willpower now. And I said, sick them, Will. We're through with that damn drinking. And I put willpower right in there between the problem and one drink. I put willpower between the problem and the solution. And I got up the next morning. I was restless and irritable and discontented. Till with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. Didn't feel good. But by God, I wasn't going to drink to change it. And a day or two later, I began to think about, you know, maybe I could take a drink and it would be okay. Or maybe it really wasn't that bad. Or maybe this time she won't file for divorce. Or maybe they really won't come and get me this time. And I'd, I'd get to thinking about taking a drink because I knew one or two drinks would make me feel good. 
but they're not running the willpower. The willpower said, no, sir, we're not going to drink. We're through with that drinking. And I wouldn't drink that day. Next day I get up and I'm still restless, irritable, and discontented. Haven't done anything to change this down on the bottom. I'm getting more and more upset with everybody around me. And I want to feel better. And I only knew one thing that would make me feel better. And it was that magic that comes from that first one or two drinks. And I'd be thinking about the great sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a couple of drinks. And I'd say, well, maybe, maybe I'm not alcoholic. Maybe I could drink. And I'd run into willpower. Willpower says, no, sir, we're not drinking. And I wouldn't drink that day. And I'd go that way for a week or two weeks or three weeks. And life's getting more and more hellish all the time. And more and more trouble with my wife and my kids and my neighbors and my bird dogs and everything around me. Could get along with nothing. And I wanted to feel better. I only knew one way to feel better. And I got to thinking about taking a drink. And I said, man, you've been sober now for 90 days. Surely, surely you could have one drink. But I hit old willpower again. The willpower said, no, sir, we're not going to drink. Don't you remember the last time you went to jail? Don't you remember last time she filed for divorce? Don't you remember last time you had a car wreck? And I wouldn't drink that day. But I'd get up the next day. And I'm still restless and irritable and discontented. And I want to feel better. And I only know one way to feel better, and that's take a drink. And I'd get to thinking about taking a drink. And my mind began to center on one thing only. The great sense of ease and comfort is going to come by a couple of drinks. And it centered on it so strong that it pushed out the jailhouse. It pushed out the divorce courts. It pushed out the car wrecks. And I could only see one thing. What alcohol was going to do for me. See, that's the reason willpower don't work for people like us. Because just before we take a drink, the mind sees nothing wrong with taking a drink. The idea of what we're going to get from the drink is so strong that it pushes out all ideas to the contrary. And we don't remember the jailhouses and the divorce courts and the car wrecks. And we think only about taking a drink. And suddenly, the idea of taking a drink went through willpower, burned right through willpower. I took a drink and triggered the allergy, and I was off and running again. And I repeated that cycle over and over and over and over and over. I came to AA, and I knew that with my superior strength and intelligence, that I didn't have to do all these things that you guys were doing. And I knew that now that I knew what was wrong with me, that I knew about the allergy and the obsession, that with my intelligence and willpower, I wouldn't have to do what you did. And 90 days later, I got drunk. And I came back to AA, and I knew damn good and well I didn't have to do those things that you guys did. And six months later, I got drunk. And I came back to AA, and I knew I did not have to do what you guys were telling me I had to do. And nine months later, I got drunk again. 
and I damn near died from alcoholism. There is nothing any more miserable for an alcoholic than to try to stay sober left on his own resources. That is the most miserable time of my life. And I look at people in AA today, new people coming in, and they haven't got into the program yet. And they still got that obsession to drink. And I just sit there and almost cry for them because I know what they're going through. See, somewhere, I, somehow, I have to find a way to live. To keep my emotions below the level that causes me to take a drink. If I could become a little less restless, a little less irritable, a little less discontented, if I could get rid of some of this shame and fear and guilt and remorse, then maybe I could run around sober and not feel so bad that it requires me to take a drink in order to feel better. Now, how do I go about doing that? Well, that's what recovery is about. That's what the program is about. Because when I came off of that third drunk almost dead, I came back with a different frame of mind. And I picked up the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began to work the program out of the book. And I'm no longer restless, irritable, and discontented. I'm no longer filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. I'm sober and I feel good. I've got peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And that's the only reason I don't drink. See, that's what recovery is about. I think it's easy to see. If you can't drink because of this allergy, and if you can't quit because of this obsession, then you've become absolutely powerless over alcohol. And that's all step one is about. And that's what we've been talking about tonight. Is step one. And those of us can make that admission, concede our innermost self that we're alcoholic and we're never going to be able to drink like other people, that there's a possibility that we can recover from alcoholism. I've been asked to tell you that we're going to start in the morning at 9 and we run to 12. We come back at 1.30. We'll run to 5. There is nothing on tomorrow night. Tomorrow night's free. Joe, you got anything else? That's all I got. Okay, that's all we've got for tonight. Thank you all for being here. Do we want to close in the usual manner? That's all standing. Don't try to make a circle. Just. Uh, this time the story is about the alcoholic, the Al-Anon, and the Al-Ateen. And by the way, do we have any Al-Anons in the room this morning? Oh, yeah, I have several. Okay, great. They had been to an AA convention, and on the way home they decided to take to go out through the countryside and, and see a little bit of different, different views and things rather than go home the regular way. And as they were going home that afternoon, they got out in the country and, and they got lost out there. And they couldn't find their way back out. And finally, finally, they stopped at a farmer's house, walked up to the door and knocked on the door. Farmer came to the door and they told him the situation. He said, well, it'll be easy for me to tell you how to get out of here. He said, it's not that difficult. But he said, it's really, though, it's getting so close to dark that you're probably going to get lost again. 
why don't you just spend the night here at the farmhouse and you can get up and leave in the morning? And they said, well, fine. Yeah, that'd be great. But he said, we've only got one problem, though. I can only sleep two of you in the house. One of you will have to sleep down in the barn with the animals. And little Alateen said, well, let me go down and sleep in the barn with the animals. I love animals and they love me and everything will be just great. So they all go to bed with the Alateen down in the barn. Sure enough, in about an hour, knock on the door. Farmer goes to the door, and there stands the Alateen. He said, man, I can't sleep down there. He said, the pigs are grunting, the cows are mooing, the horses are stomping their feet, and their chickens are clucking, and I just can't sleep. The alcoholic said, well, come on in go to bed. I'll go down in the barn, and I'll sleep with the animals. He said, I was born and raised on a farm. That'll be no problem for me. So they all go to bed with the alcoholic down in the barn. Sure enough, about an hour, knock on the door, and there stands the alcoholic, and he said, man, I can't sleep down there either. He said, those pigs are grunting, the cows are mooing, the horses are stomping their feet, and their chickens are clucking, and I just can't sleep. The Al-Anon said, well, I knew that it would be up to me to handle the situation. <laughs> she said, you guys come on in, and I'll go down in the barn, and I'll sleep with the animals. So they all go to bed with the Al-Anon down in the barn, and sure enough, about an hour, knock on the door. Farmer goes to the door, and there stands the pigs and the cows and the chickens. <laughs> now, I'm buried to a black belt Al-Anon that's got 38 years in the Al-Anon Fellowship, and every time I tell that joke, she just gets mad her nails. <laughs> We love Al-Anon. We really love Al-Anon. I think it's the best thing ever happened to AA. You know, any new person I work with, if they've still got a spouse, I do everything I can to get that spouse involved in Al-Anon. makes it a lot easier for we alcoholics to stay sober. You know, you Al-Anons can't make us sober and, and you can't make us drink, but you can make us thirsty as hell once in a while. So. <laughs> I do. I do my best to get them involved in Al-Anon. No? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Enough fooling around. We uh, spent a lot of time last night talking about the doctor's opinion. And we could see that, uh, that our problem with alcohol was not weak will, that it wasn't moral character, that it wasn't sin, that we actually had an illness, and it's a twofold illness, an illness of the body and as well as an illness of the mind. And we found that we had become physically allergic to alcohol. And every time we put alcohol in our system, it produces what Dr. Silkworth referred to as the phenomenon of craving. And it was impossible for us to control the amount we drink after we once start drinking. We also found out that was only part of the problem that we also had what we call an obsession of the mind. An obsession of the mind being an idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. And it really didn't make any difference how badly we wanted to stay sober. Didn't make any difference how badly we exerted our willpower. From time to time, the obsession of the mind would tell us that it's okay to drink. And believing at this time is going to be different. Believing at this time we're not going to get drunk. We take the drink, 
we trigger the allergy, and we end up drunk over and over and over and over. And we could see that if we couldn't safely drink because of the body, if we couldn't keep from drinking because of the mind, then we've become absolutely powerless over alcohol. And for most of us, for the first time in our lives, that's the first time we knew what was wrong with us. Because you see, we always thought it was willpower too. We always thought it was moral character. We always thought it was sin. Why would we not? That's what everybody had told us up until that time. And I think we people in AA are the luckiest alcoholics in the world because we're the only alcoholics in the world that know what's wrong with us. All the rest of them out there, they still think it's willpower. They think it's moral character and they think it's sin. And eventually, if they don't find AA, they're probably going to die from alcoholism. So the first time we really see and understand what our problem really is. Now, remember, Dr. Silkworth gave that to Bill Wilson. And just before Bill went to Akron, Ohio, he talked to Dr. Silkworth. And he said, I've been trying to help other alcoholics here in New York City, and none of them have responded. I must be doing something wrong. And Dr. Silkworth said, well, why don't you explain to them the exact nature of the illness? Why don't you tell them what I told you, that every alcoholic wants to know? Why can't I drink like I used to without getting drunk? Why can't I stay sober now that I want to stay sober? He said, explain that to them and you'll get their attention. Then you can talk to them about spirituality, not by accident. The very next person, person Bill talked to happened to be Dr. Bob. And he did something with Dr. Bob that he hadn't been doing in New York City. He sits down with Dr. Bob, and rather than talk about Dr. Bob's drinking, Bill says, let me tell you about my drinking. And he began to share his own story. And as he shared his story, he talked about this thing called the physical allergy. He talked about the fact that every time he started drinking, he'd be unable to stop, and he'd end up drunk when he didn't want to be drunk. He talked about his own obsession of the mind, that irregardless of how hard he tried on willpower, from time to time his mind would tell him it's okay to drink, and Dr. Bob identified with him immediately. Then Dr. Bob, already being in the Oxford group, he began to apply their program to a depth they never had before, and he recovered. And they learned at that particular meeting the value 